0: Well, hey, good morning. It's great to see you guys here. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors uh, here. Um, I know that Emmy uh, mentioned this in her uh, in her prayer, but I just want to uh, just reiterate uh, and ask that you guys would be in prayer for our high school students who are down uh, in Laredo, Texas. Uh, this week, they're at a buddy of mine's uh, church uh, down there, and they're being stretched and serving and growing, uh, hopefully into Christ's likeness as they get to to Yeah, to be an impact there. And so uh, please be praying uh, for them. So, hey, we've been in this series uh, called What If... Uh, and today, we are finishing that up. We started uh, with this idea of how we use our time, and then it was how do we use our talents. And then last week, we started this conversation around how do we use our treasures and uh, and how do we kind of do that in our personal life. And so I had this moment this week uh, where um, I was uh, on Facebook, which I don't get on very often. Uh, it's my wife's birthday, so I think I was probably prepping for like, because I'm just not good at those things, to write something. Uh, but I saw on there this advertisement that caught my eye, and it said this. It said, goodbye, dad bod. And I thought, oh, interesting. I'm intrigued, you know, like this, this feels like it was written for me, you know. Um, and so uh, I read the, the subtitles and it says, show off your muscles and hide your belly. And I was like, sign me up, you know, like how do I buy that shirt, you know, like I want that. And, uh, and it was this moment, like and I, I wouldn't have bought it and I've never done that um, off of Facebook or something like that. But, but it's this moment like that the spirit just used, this little twinge. Uh, just this reminder of how, Seth, how do you, how do you think about money? And, uh, and like, like, what do you think this shirt provides for you that, that you think that you're bringing something special into the world? That's not true, you know? Um, and so there's this thing, uh, this reality, is that the Spirit convicted me how we how I think about money and how we think about money in the culture that we live in. Uh, and so, if you are here with us this last week, uh, we talked about this story uh, where Jesus is talking to a lawyer, right? And the lawyer stands up and asks Jesus this, this question. And he says, what must i do to inherit eternal life and so as the dialogue continues and unfolds the answer is you know love god with all of your heart soul strength and mind and Love your neighbors yourself, right? Love others, right? And this is the, the perfect uh, answer. And yet, as Jesus is doing this, what he's doing is that he's pulling out of this man um, these deeper issues, right? Because then there's this question that you have to ask yourself, if, like, if I'm supposed to love God and love others, like, what's the extent to which I can do that or I need to do that? Um, really asking yourself this question, am I good enough? And at what point um, is it good enough? And can I go backwards? Is it only forwards? Is there addition and subtraction? Like how does that work? And like, is it a balance, is it scales, you know? And so here's this, this guy, right? And what Jesus is doing is that he's flipping the story, right? And he's going, like, no, dude, you don't get it, right? Nobody is good enough. And so what he's doing is he's introducing sin into the scenario, right? Nobody is good enough because sin and simple nature is a part of the equation, right? And that's just the reality. Nobody is actually good enough. And so So, this man that he's talking to is this man who's deeply ingrained with this effectual sin, this prejudice towards another. Person and this other group of people, and so Jesus brings that out. And in order to talk about the generosity of God, right? What Jesus does is he paints this picture, the story of a Samaritan who comes across a man, right, who is who is broken in all regards and helpless, and he cares for the man and takes it all the way to the very end of the story, where Jesus uses, and this is so fundamental at the end, so intrinsic to understanding that the point of the story is that he offers this man in the story offers a blank check to the innkeeper and says that whatever you spend, no matter how much it is, when I come back, I will repay it. And so really what we're seeing and experiencing is this, this lavish, this extravagance of God, right? It's this, really this portrait of the gospel that in the midst of sin, in the midst of brokenness and depravity, right, is that there's this blank check that God essentially offers that says, no matter how deep your sin runs, grace will always run deeper. And it's this invitation, right, because Jesus lived. Like generosity, radical generosity was defining and definitive of how Jesus lived, right, is super important for us to process and to see, because this is ex- experienced and found really where? Ultimately, it's found in the cross, and it's found in his, his death and his resurrection. We know it's forgiveness of sins by grace and through, and through faith, right? And so we know that the gospel actually hinges, the gospel hinges on the radical generosity of God, This is so important, right? And so then really in his story, in Jesus' story, as well as throughout the pages of Scripture, we see and find this invitation by God to his people to live generously in the world, right? This radical, countercultural generosity in the world that we live in, right? And yet what we oftentimes find in our lives, and and I know this is true for me, I'm guessing it's true for you, is that what we know to be true is often... Oftentimes, there's this massive gap, maybe sometimes small, but oftentimes there's this big gap between what we know to be true and how we actually live our lives. And so what we need is to take, right, this generosity, this idea needs to be converted, right, transferred into these practical, Practical, sacrificial disciplines in our life. These, these disciplines that represent the gospel and, and represent, right, like well, who Christ is. And we need to put those really ultimately into practice. And the hope is that, that the more you and I understand the gospel, is that the more we're actually being remade into the image of Christ, which means then that at the end of the day, or at the end of this, right, is that we get more and more generous, right? Which includes. Not limited to, but includes how we spend our money. And so this last week, we talked about this idea of kind of like this idea of living generously, right? And so we think about our own personal finances as we go throughout the day, whether it's some spending money on Starbucks or whatever, right? As we go throughout the day, how do we think about using the money that God has given us to bless people around us? So, but today... Instead of living generously, we're going to talk about giving generously. And I know, guys, there's so many institutions out there that are worthy of your giving, okay? But I want to specify that what I'm talking about this morning is the church because the church, I think that I, this is the way I see it, and I hope that the way, this is the way you see it, is that in Scripture, God has revealed that the church is the institution and the establishment in which he's using as the primary piece to grow his kingdom, Okay, and so we're talking primarily about the church. Now, now here's the deal: is that uh, giving and tithing is not a very popular conversation among churches. In fact, um, I've compiled a, ris- a list of five reasons why a lot of pastors uh, f- uh, shy away from this. The, uh, the first one is this: it's a lack of training. Do you want to know how many math courses I had in seminary? Zero. <laughs> Am I an accountant? No, not at all, like by no means, right? That's not my training, my training is in Bible, right? And that's, that's what seminary does. So there's a lack of training. What else? Uh, there's a fear of failure. Right? There's a sense in which, gosh, like, if I were to say something, like, it feels like whenever you talk about money, because of values and different systems that we each have, right, no matter when we talk about it, it's going to be offensive to somebody. And so I go, man, like, I might say something that's offensive to you or to you or to you. Right? And then all of a sudden, we get to this idea of the fear of rejection. Because the last thing that we want is to talk about money. And we're like, hey, this is a God-given thing. This is a gift. This is so good for us to do and nothing happens, you know, like, that would be bad, like, that's not, like, there's this rejection, I'm like, hey, that's a really good thing, but squat, you know, but the fourth one is this, is like, I don't want to be that guy, like, some of you, some of you guys are like, you guys might be um, guests, and you're like, oh, no, the one day I come, (laughs) and this is, this is the sermon, here's the deal, Um, we haven't done this probably, um, I don't know that we've done this at all, since, in the three years that I've been here. And so, in fact, if anything, we really should do it more. We should do it on a much regular basis, right? Not this, not just every once in a while, right? This is important. This is a part, this is a healthy theology, this is a healthy church that so we talk about these things because it's a part of what God asks us to do. And the last one is this, right? It's the fear of desperation. Like, no one wants to, to come up here and be like, hey, guys, you know, um, if we don't have increased our giving, then then the doors will be locked and we'll close down tomorrow. Like, no one wants to hear, like, this, this desperation or appear no pastor wants to appear to be desperate okay now here's the deal so when i think about this right so it, we oftentimes or churches or pastors will oftentimes steer away from these things but the, but the reality is is like i want to challenge the notion that this is not a fun conversation right like i know that like sometimes you sit around the table and mom and dad are talking to you and you're like hey listen you've got five dollars to spend and you're like Ugh, you know But here's the deal. Like, I think this is fun because when we talk about it as a church, what we're talking about is that we're talking about the kingdom. We're talking about growing God's kingdom and alternately, we're also, inadvertently, we're also being made into the likeness of Jesus actually together, right? And so I think it's a really fun conversation. And what we normally do... well, we normally do. If you've been here before, uh, we oftentimes will just take one passage and we'll kind of walk through that passage today because I want you to see the story unfold. We're actually going to walk from Genesis to Revelation, and you're like, "Oh my goodness, we'll be here till next week." Well, the reality is, is that the first service is already done, so you're not, so we're good, right? So, but Genesis to Revelation, I want us to see, right, this biblical theology approach of how does generosity? Like, we're going to look at these different characters. We're going to start with Abram, and then we'll move to Moses move to the Israelites, then we'll move to Jesus, right? We're going to see each of these characters is going to become a lens. And what I want you to do is I want you, if you can, like in some sense, right, this is like the perk of having glasses and not being able to see, it's like you're taking off one lens and you're actually going to be putting on another lens and allow ourselves to see how generosity and the goodness of God actually runs through the scripture, okay? So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Um, So you guys remember um, Adam and Eve, right? God creates the universe. Adam and Eve enter into the story happily ever after, right? Wrong, right? Uh, just tanks. The world goes into chaos and brokenness, right? And so, what God does is He institutes a plan to actually redeem, right? And so, He starts, one of the main ways He starts is through this man named Abram, okay? So, this will provide the context for our story. This is really the vision behind, right, the redemption that God is gonna do, okay? This generosity of God. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Do you see the pattern that God is saying, the things that I give you, the things that I give you to be a blessed, like you're blessed, but to what? To be a blessing, Right? He says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you I will curse and and you and all the fam- in and in you all the families, not some or partial, but everyone. Uh, on the earth actually shall be blessed. That's a pretty big promise, isn't it? That God is making uh, to Abram. And so this provides really the backdrop. And he's talking about a land and he's doing it through a man, this guy named Abram, right? And so what we're going to find is that a part of this whole generosity theme, right, is intimately tied to the idea of the promised land, which is where the temple would later be built. And it's a space of blessing uh, and worship, right? And it's later going to become this actually this launching pad uh, for the people. Of God into the world, right? Okay, so what actually happens here, this is kind of a fun thing, right? Is that um, Abram, I'm gonna come back over here, right? So God calls Abram. Abram from this land called Ur, and he travels um, over here, and he has this squabble um, with a relative named Lot, and so they like they're skirmishing uh, over um, whose sheep get which grazing land, and so uh, his this Lot he, he kind of settles in on the Jordan Valley right along. It's very fruitful and, and, and nourishing of an environment, and so Abram goes another way. But what happens is is that these kings start to battle in. The this space. Okay? And through that, this, this man named Lot actually ends up getting taken um, into captivity. And so Abram kind of rushes to his aid. And so doing what he does is that he actually uh, defeats this whole king, this partnership of kings, and he brings all of the spoils back. Right, and so immediately he goes from very little, right? God, he's just He's just come, you know, from this direction. He, you know, he came and blah, blah blah. And all of a sudden he's here, and he has all of this massive loot that God has really just kind of placed in his hand. And he's in this space, and I'm going to put this like as a little as a little house. And there's this valley, um, the Shaveh Valley, which is actually the Valley Kidron, which is where Jesus talks about the Mount of Olives. And so this is actually where he ends up being. And there's this man named Melchizedek. Zedek, who comes out of the city, guess what he is? He's the king of who? Salem. Very good. D- did you know? That's where we are. We're in the Bible, right? Salem, like all the way back when, you know? Um, and so that's where we get our name, right? And so Salem, which is the original name, which would later be called Jerusalem or Yerusalem, which means they will see or experience or feel the completeness of God. Like, so it's in this space that Jerusalem, Jerusalem would be the place where people experience peace, right? And so he comes out and he offers a blessing. He brings uh, bread and wine, and he comes out to offer a blessing to Abram. And this is um, and this is what he uh, and this is what he says in chapter uh, fourteen. He says, "Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High." who has delivered your enemies into your hand, okay? So here's what's interesting, right? Here's what's interesting, right? Is this like um, Melchizedek, who is a Canaanite king. We don't know a ton about him other than he's king and high priest and all that, which is pretty pretty common in the ancient Near Eastern kind of world, right? And what he does is he's talking to Abram. He identifies something very important about worship. He identifies God as who? El- El-Yon. El is like this kind of a more common kind of base name for God. And then you have that again. El-Yon. God, the God most high. And so what he does is that he is actually kind of creating this umbrella, right? There you go. That's weird. Yeah, it works. Right? He's creating this umbrella, right? And he's placing like all of these false and kind of fake gods underneath this and get who's on top who's the God who blessed Abram? He's the most high. He's the one who's above all. And what has he done? He's actually given something to Abram, right? And he's blessed him, right? And so what we're going to find is that there's this kind of reciprocal nature that God, El Elyon, gives to Abram. And what does Abram do in return? He actually gives back. In fact, this is the very first tithe in the entire Bible, right? He gives them what's called a ma'aser. A ma'aser is the word that we get tithe from. Do you know what a tithe means or what, what, the, what this stands for? A tenth, very good. Yeah, it stands for a tenth, which means that this is the very first time. And so what we're identifying here is that Abram, why, does he, why in the world does he give a tenth to Melchizedek? Well, because Melchizedek is actually the king of the region. And so by being the king of the region and offering this blessing, right, Abram acknowledges something far more fundamental than social construct. What does he do? He knows that God has now just given him all of this richness from this conquest he's had over these kings. And what does he do? Does he have a God to give it to? Does he have a temple to give it to? No, so what does he do? He offers and he gives 10% back to, the first 10th he gives back to, to Melchizedek. And we see this reciprocal, right? And what we're, this reciprocal giving and receiving. So what we're identifying here is if you want to know, like if you want to unlock the idea of generosity in the Bible, here's what you need to understand is that every single thing that you have, money, items, whatever it is, everything that you have was first whose. Gods, and remains gods. And so what we're finding is that to unlock generosity and to understand the idea of tithing, what we're doing is that we're going to identify that what God has given me, and then I want to give back in return. In fact, this is so important, right? This is so important that it actually gets uh, instituted in the law. Look at um, Leviticus. This is where Moses kind of enters into the story. Um, And here's the lens, right? He says this in Leviticus uh, 2730. He says, every tithe of the land, right? So tithe, when you receive that, you think what? Tenth, right? So every tenth every tenth piece of the land, whether it's seed or of the land or of the fruit of the trees. So really anything that we have, they didn't live in a culture of currency in the way that we do. They dealt like through life with like fruits and produce and animals and livestock, right? So, but everything that they own, everything that they have, right? Whether man or beast or his inherited field, uh, sorry, I just read the wrong verse. Um, The land of the seed or the fruit of the trees is is the Lord's, it is holy to the Lord. And so what it does is it says that every single piece, right, it identifies it, and it says that it shall be what? It shall be holy, which means that it shall be set apart. And really what we're talking about is the first fruits. We're talking about like taking your best, your very best things and giving that to God first. So um, I've learned in in 12 years of marriage, this is a principle that without fail, it happens almost every single time we go out to eat, and and unless I order something very spicy, which my wife won't eat, she looks at my meal and she gives me that look. And that look is, I would like to try a bite. And I look at her, and I'm like, you ordered your food, and I ordered my food, so eat your food, you know? Like, we both ordered our own things, and yet if I was a generous person, if I was truly a generous person, here's what I would do, right, is that steaming plate of food, maybe it's a steak with some nice potatoes or french fries, and it smells so good, right? And if I was a generous person, I would take the very first cut, and I would say, here, honey, this is for you. And instead, what I might do instead is that I might eat to my fullness and to my content and then give her my leftovers, which doesn't happen very often because there's not usually leftovers. So... um, But there's this you get get what I'm saying, right? Is that we either give the first fruits and the best of it, or we give the leftovers. And this is the culture that we oftentimes live in, right? You think about even like the sacrificial system. Like why is it that God says that you must bring one that's like an animal that's pure and spotless? Well, one, it needs to be pure and spotless to represent Jesus, who's pure and spotless, and that he's sinless. But it also means that you're not bringing the most scraggly, worn-out sheep from your flock and just going, yep, here you go. It's that you're bringing your your best, the best of everything that you have. Your first fruits goes who to who? And it goes directly to God first. And so here's what I think is so interesting is that when these things get converted or not, when when generosity actually gets put into the law, what oftentimes happens for you and I is that it becomes normalized. And it becomes this box to be checked, like give, 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 and give. And all of a sudden, we lose the why. And we forget that this starts with the story about a generous God who blesses people so that we can bless in return, which really is to reject and to cut out the goodness of the gospel throughout the Bible. You lose that, that piece, that component. Because what happens is that in any of these moments, like when it becomes normalized and I'm forgetting the why, what can happen is that sin enters into the equation and it can hijack the scenario. And so what was designed by God to be a blessing to me that I could bless others has now become an idol. And it's something that I cling to and hold to and use. And the first fruits go to who? They go to me. Guys, like, I, I, in some sense, I get this, like, like, authority in my position as a leader is determined by authenticity. And so I want you to know that this is a part of what we do as a family. But can I be honest with you and tell you that just because we have it set up online to give, does that always mean that every time it goes in that I'm thinking that's my first fruits? No. That's a perspective that we have to Change. Right? It's, about, it's about it being the best that's going to God. Right? In fact, actually, what kind of happens over here, right? you might remember this story, which, by the way, do you remember, um, when God promises the land to Abram, does he give it to him right away? No. How long does he have to wait? About 400 years. <laughs> so is he alive when that happens? No way. Right? So everything that he's investing in, Right, this, this land, this prosperous thing for all people, in which all people will be blessed, he doesn't even get to experience, right? And so, in fact, he actually ends up having to leave. And then what happens is, is the story kind of goes, right? You have this, you know, this group of people, right? They begin to flourish down in Egypt because there's a famine up here. And so there's this group that, that flourishes, right? But then eventually they're going to come back. And so what God says in Deuteronomy 12 is he says is that when you come back into the land, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find altar, altar, altar altar. You're going to find all these altars all over the place. And here's what he says, when you enter into the land that God has promised 400 years later, I want you to demolish and destroy each of these. And then what I want you to do is that I want you to find the place, that mountain, which is, which is the mountain that Jerusalem and the temple was built on, I want you to find the one place and I want you to bring your sacrifices there. And so in so doing, he contrasts the multitude, the polytheistic like right, religion of all of these idols and he contrasts that with there's one true God, El Elyon, it's Yahweh one God, not many, and when you come and when you worship together, now what's going to happen is that all of this money from the people who live here in Jerusalem and all through Judea right, are going to bring their money to the temple. right? Do you get that? That's kind of how that works. Right? <clears throat> So, as we, as we kind of keep going, right, what we, what we actually learn though in this too is that as you think about these tithing, right, um, you might go, man, 10% is really big. 10% is huge. For some of you, like some of you guys have more, some of you have less, and I get that, right? And so, for some of you, you might be saying 10% is so huge. But on top of the 10%, the tithe, which is obligatory in the Old Testament, your first fruits, everything that you have, your best 10% goes to God first. On top of that, they had other obligatory ties. right? One for festivals. Another, they had every three years, they had a collection for, for uh, widows and for sojourners and people in need, right? And so for many of you, you're like, gosh, 10% is so high. Like, I, like, I'm, bare, like I'm trying to make ten, like, like ends meet. I I, and I get that, but let me just tell you, like, if, if it's hard for you who has more to make your ends meet, how much harder is it for those who have less? And so there's this tithe that goes in, right? And it's what we do, maybe through different ministries that we have here to help people who are in need. Right, And so there's all these things, and here's what's fascinating to me, and this was such a, like, kind, of like, kind of like a punch in the gut to me when I was learning this this week, um, is that 10% is the number that I had always kind of grown up learning. In the Jewish world, once you added up the rest of those numbers, all of the other tithes and offerings that they needed to do throughout the year, it actually was more like 23%. And then on top of that, there was a volitional offering, a of free will. So if someone who could come and say, I want to give above and beyond. As you can see how generosity actually begins, like, like really flows through this whole story. And what we're going to find, though, is that these broken patterns, right, is that this is the way the law is set up, this is the way it's designed, but there's this broken pattern, because what happens is is they enter in, when they actually enter into the land, they destroy some of those things, but guess what, later on, they're just rebuilt. So when bad kings come, right, all of that money then gets diverted away from the temple and it goes back into what? Idolatry. And it becomes this mixed bag at best. As Some goes to the temple, but lots goes to other things, right? In fact, right, in 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 31, uh, verses 4 through 5, here's what it says, right? This is a guy named Hezekiah, right? He's a good king, and he acknowledges that there's a brokenness in, in the people's rhythms. And so here's what he does. It says, and he commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem... "...to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites, that they might give themselves to the law of the Lord." As soon as the command was spread abroad, the people of Israel, I love this. Look at this. Look how beautiful this is. They gave in abundance the first fruits of grain, of wine, and oil, and honey, and of all the produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. In fact, it goes on and to say that all of these first fruits, and it says that they heaped them so much that they had these massive piles. <laughs> These massive piles of stuff, right? And it's this beautiful, beautiful picture of how they and how we can actually respond. And it's not because it's obligatory. It's not just because they're like, ah, this is something I need to do, right? Do you notice it's a it's perspective? It's, it's a changing and going, we are going to bring our first fruits and the best of everything we have. But it's not just that. We do it in abundance, so much so that there's an abundance that's left over in these big, in these big piles. And it's the, it's the first fruits, it's the best, not the leftovers. And so all of that money then that was being diverted back to the idols and back to the altars is now being diverted back to the temple again. And so what we find is these broken rhythms, right? Similarly, what happens to, right, not after, well, I guess I'll do this. So, um, right, so all this money was coming in. Right, but then over time, as bad kings developed, it goes back out, and they rebuild the altars. But then Hezekiah comes, and other kings, and they demolish it, and they bring money back to the temple. Right, which is this kind of this broken pattern. Right, there's this up, and then there's down, up and down, and there's faithfulness, and then there's decline, and faithfulness. And decline, But then what happens is that later on, if you remember, the, these bad guys, the name uh, of the Assyrians, they come from way over here, which, by the way, I, I, I can't abbreviate. I learned that, so don't do that, right? Um, the, Assyrians, the Assyrians, they come in, and they actually attack Jerusalem. And so doing, they carry all of these people out into exile. Well, for 70 years, the people that are growing up over here, do they have a temple? No. Who are they giving to? Nobody, right? And so when God finally allows for them to return back over here, what they find is that again, the walls are a ruin, the temple is a ruin, and what they find is that the giving patterns, the tithing, the tenth, the best of, the first fruits, is a broken rhythm. And so they have to again reinstitute that so that this could be rebuilt, right? Right? And so there's this pattern, this pattern that exists uh, through Scripture. In fact, later on in the Bible, the, the very last book in our, in our English Old Testament is the book of Malachi, and God asks this, this, very, this very kind of convicting question, and he says this. He says, will man rob God? And he says, you know, like he's kind of putting words in their mouth to say, but you might say, how are we robbing you? And his answer is this, because you don't bring the full tithe, you only bring a part. You don't bring a full tithe, right? And what it's doing is that we're missing out on this principle, and really this kind of this, this larger biblical principle is not just the law, but look at this in Proverbs 3.9. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with for the first fruits of all of your produce. And get this, this is going to be, this is going to be the paradox because when you do that, when you honor God, when you give God your best, when you give God first your first fruits, guess what? Then your barns will be filled with plenty, right? That's the paradox. How is it that we can give to the Lord and yet then we're still full? That's a God thing. That's not a man thing. That's not a number you can calculate, right? But what God says is that this is the way I've designed it, is that when you bring to me your best, I will provide for you, right? And that's the way that it's designed. And yet, guys, there is inside of us, there is this innate selfishness that wants to build my kingdom instead of God's kingdom, right? Like our first response, like oftentimes in today's culture is to take what's first and what's best and to use it for us. And let's just be honest because I think this is true for me and I'm guessing it's probably true for you. I don't think that this is a big intentional thing on our part. It's not like we, we take all of this money that God has given us and then we like, you know, shout at him like, bah, we're going to do whatever we want. See, I don't think that's the case. It's not like I'm going to take my toys and go home. I think it's more like this, is that whenever you and I, we get out of a rhythm, because that's what was demonstrated, right? They're in rhythm, and then they break it, and so they have to be brought back in. And they're back in rhythm, and then it's broken. So whether, whenever we're out of rhythm in something, whether it's exercising or tithing to the church, that virtue then begins to depreciate. And all of a sudden, it's not as valuable in the same way as it was before. And yet, what we find in Scripture is that the heart of God is an ongoing and timeless commitment to generosity. And you begin to wonder how does Jesus change the story? How does Jesus enter into this? When we were in Israel, um, we went in, um, to this antiquity store, um, a Christian guy named Zach, and, uh, and it's a man that I had gotten to know and visited the first time we were in Israel, and so uh, I ignorantly thought that he might remember me uh, coming back. And so I walk into his store, and I'm like, hey, Zach, and he's like, treats me like any other, any other customer, you know? And I'm like, oh, yeah, not special, you know? And so he comes, and he's trying to sell me this coin. And by the way, you look throughout this room, and like, I love antiquities, I love archaeology. Like, I love all of that. And so there's this down on this, on the ground, there's like a fourth century mosaic. And I was like, wow, that's incredible. $8,000. That's way too much, right? And so here he is. He's got this coin and he brings it over to me. And he's like, it's a silver denarius. I'm like, wow, Zach, that's incredible. That is so cool. It's amazing. How much is that? He's like, it's $800. And I went... <laughs> oh man he goes no 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 I have the paperwork I said oh Zach I'm sure that that's real I'm sure it is and he goes no no it's actually a really good deal I said you know what Zach I put my hand on his shoulder I said I'm sure that it is but you are so far out of my league right now Zach what you need to know is I'm a pastor and he goes oh I'm so sorry (laughs) and I said, Zach, what you need, he's like, I was a pastor for many years, I understand. I said, Zach, what you need is you need a section of antiquities that's free for pastors. That's what I can afford, and so he goes, he goes, you know what, I have something, and he goes, and he gets this little box, and he brings it back over, and I thought maybe it was just going to be a little carved box, and yet he opened it up, and inside of this box is a first century coin, this is called a widow's mite. It's a mite in English because it is virtually, you know, worthless. Uh, you put two of these together, and it's about an eighth of a penny. And yet, yeah, it's a first-century coin. And so, as he gave it to me you could just sense the generosity that was coming and oozing out of his being. But guys, this is why this is so important. Do you remember this story? In Jesus' time, right, in Mark chapter 12, Right, there's this moment that Jesus has, and it says this. It says that he sat down opposite the treasury, which by the way, how, when does Jesus do this? Like, like, He just sits in a corner and people watches. This is kind of strange, right? And it says he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny in their time. Okay? And here's what I want you to think. Like in, in their time, guys, here's what it was look like. Which, by the way, I think I have a picture of that, of that coin. I'm not sure if we got to see it. Like That's what it kind of looks like um, up close. Now, I want you to imagine that coin, right? Because what happened was there would have been 13 different boxes, and each of them would have been labeled something differently, depending on the tithe or the offering that you're bringing. And so what's being described is that these rich people would bring these massive bags of money, these shekels, heavy shekels and denarius, and they would pour, and it would clink, 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 and make all of this noise, right? And in so doing, there's cheering and trumpets being sounded. And Jesus, by the way, he doesn't say that the giving to the church in large sums is bad. He doesn't say that at all. But what he says is this, because you imagine like this woman walking with these two tiny coins and as she puts them in to this little cache, like you wouldn't even hear a sound. He pulls his disciples over gathers them together, and he says, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those, not just that one rich person, but all of the people who are contributing to the offering box, for they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she had, all that she had to live on. You see, it's not about how much It's about your heart and it's about your generosity. Right? That's the way that this goes, whether little or much. And as the story, story kind of goes on, right, here's what happens, right, is that Jesus eventually, right, he lives and, and he dies and then he's raised again and then so all of a sudden the temple is really no more. And so what happens is, is thanks to Acts chapter 2, the church explodes out into the world, all over the known world. And then here's the church over here and here's the church over here. And the way it's designed then is that those who are in that area, right, who are given the blessing of that place then, they now bring their money into this church. And so Paul, when Paul, here's the lens, right? When Paul is talking to the church in 2 Corinthians 9, here's what he says. He says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Guys, this is something that's interesting for me, right? Like over these last couple of years, right, we've seen our attendance grow. In fact, we would say that that we touch about 700 adults a month, and yet right now, I want you to know that we are 100000 more than $100,000 behind in our giving from this year to last year. Our numbers continue to grow, but that has become a struggle for us. And I wonder, and I don't know, but I, I would say this, is I know that a lot of churches during COVID like fell apart and disintegrated, and that's not what God has been doing here. And so I'm so thankful for that. That is wonderful. But I do wonder if COVID broke some of the rhythms that we were in. And that we then need to come back and say, God, I'm reinstituting my first fruits that go to you, right? Because, you know, Salem's trend in the years past has been this, is that we get to December and we experience what we call a Nike swoosh, right? And it's this idea of like like generosity overflows and it fills up, right? But can I just tell you, and we oftentimes cover all of our expenses that way, which I praise God, but can I tell you that that's stressful, (laughs) Because then that means is that every time that I go into Christmas, I'm looking back. When I'm supposed to be celebrating Jesus, I'm looking back saying, what's going to happen? Here's my wonder. Here's my thought. Here's my question. Here's my hope. Here's my prayer. What if instead of looking back, we came to Christmas, and because of abundance and generosity, there was all of this stored up so that we could look forward and think about how do we bless others, not just fill backwards. That's my thought and I want to give you this, this picture because, and I'm not going to put it up on the slides because we need to finish, but Revelation, the story ends, you go from Genesis to Revelation and the story ends in, in Revelation where it says that there's a new heaven and a new earth. Right? And it's in this space, though, that God has will finally make a permanent establishment to his kingdom where there's no crying, there's no weeping, there's no mourning. It's perfect. And so just know that that's where we're going. And that's the mission and the vision that we're about is getting to that point with as many people in God's family as we possibly can. But right now, right here, we are building the kingdom that's moving towards that. That's what we're about, and that's what we're doing. You know, it's oftentimes been said, no money, no mission. And I think it's clever, it's catchy. I don't think it's entirely true because I think that sometimes, like, we can do mission without money. But by and large, when there isn't money, the mission is limited. Like, God can do whatever He wants to do, and He doesn't need money. But here's what I do know is that what He asks for in Scripture and what He models first Himself, primarily in the person of Jesus Christ, is that he asks for people who are cheerful givers, who generously give out of their abundance and give what they can. You know, the title title for the sermon was Giving Generously because you look last week, it was Living Generously. You know, we could talk about that with our personal finances. This one, Giving Generously. But I do think, guys, it's not just about giving and it's not just about generosity. What if you retitle it to Giving Generously to the King? Because what we're talking about is who Jesus is and the kingdom that he's about and the kingdom that he is building. That's what giving is doing. And so when When we think about what if scenarios, like this whole series, what if, right? You might say, well, what if the roof didn't leak? Did you know that the roof uh, that's going in starting, I think, tomorrow, that that roof to replace that costs well over half a million dollars? That's a lot of money. Did you know that that new gym floor that everybody wants to use costs over a hundred thousand dollars? Now fortunately, insurance is covering those things, but if you're like me, you want to see that what your money is doing is going towards something that's tangible and tactile. So I think about the community gardens, I think about what's happening at Allen Hopkins, right? But here's the reality is that those are just spaces and environments. What we're talking about giving towards is the transformation of lives where people come to know Christ, which leads to more baptisms, which leads to more disciples, which leads to more disciple makers here in Fargo-Moorhead in the world. So whether it's kids ministry or youth ministry or life groups or adult Sunday school groups, it doesn't matter whether it's outreach or missions. What we're talking about is investing in the growth and the multiplication of Jesus in and through his people here at Salem. That's what you're giving to. And I want you to know that. Because when you say, what if, I want you to dream and say, you're actually starting to buy into the fact that the local church, is God's chosen institution and establishment for kingdom growth. It's his primary institution. And we can actually begin to dream God dreams about how he's building his kingdom and how you and I can sacrificially contribute our time, our talents, and our treasures to help make that happen. And I know this is scary, and I want to give you these things as we, as we finish, and we'll do a song and and leave. I know that it's scary because we live in a culture of currency, right? Money is our livelihood, right? It represents our bills. It represents food on the table. It represents gas in our car, and it's hard to process that. It's also scary because it means less for me, and that's radically countercultural, right? Like, we have to think about this, this John 3, he must increase and I must decrease, and I might ask the question, like, how great and how big might the kingdom be if you and I were a little bit smaller in it? It's not just scary, it's also really exciting because just because it means less for me, it actually means it's more for God's kingdom, And the last thing is this, is that it actually means, instead of creating a culture of currency, we counteract that and say we're creating a culture of Christlikeness. You see, our life is either characterized by generosity or selfishness. It's either characterized by building my kingdom or God's kingdom. And when Jesus says that he wants to bring us life to the full, this what-if scenario, it's not just an invitation to be set free from the burden and the bondage of sin, but it's also to be set free from how culture dictates what life lived like to the full even really means. And I want to invite you to join the vision, to join the mission at Salem, because at the heart of this biblical story from Genesis to Revelation is a generous God who calls his church to be generous, which all comes back to the gospel. Let's pray. Father, Lord, as we finish our time this morning, Lord, I pray that you would be encouraging in us and that you'd be allowing us to see the generosity that exudes from Jesus Christ, that we would be reminded of how good the gospel really is, that no matter what my sin is and how deep it runs and how wide that it is, is that your grace runs deeper still. And it's not a grace that says that we can go on living the way that we want to, but it calls us to say no to unrighteousness and yes to godliness and to holiness. And so, Lord, I pray that for us as a church that you would just encourage in us this sight, this understanding, this knowledge of generosity and how much you've blessed us. And God, I pray that we would respond in kindness, not just in living generously with our time and with our talents. We need that, but also with our finances in our personal life and here at church. Lord, would we be a people, no matter who we are, no matter how much money we have, whatever we do, may we be a people who say, Jesus, we will bring you our first fruits because we love you. And you're going to